here. Um, I'll, I'll start this new series that we're going into today with a story. I was working at Hy-Vee Grocery Store not too far from here, and I was the manager of Starbucks. And we recently, at this point, it was a few years ago, had hired this new assistant produce manager. And uh, he was a really nice guy. His name was Matt, really friendly, talkative all the time. That's why he got a job at Hy-Vee, because he was so friendly. And now, I'm not saying I'm not friendly, but and compared to Matt, I'm not. And we were in the back room, and I'm like thinking of sales goals and breaking records and how we're going to cut costs. And Matt always wanted to talk to me, always just wanted to stop working, whatever he was doing, and talk to me. And I was like, you know, I said to him, I said, hey, we don't just put bananas on the shelf and people come and pick it up. We got to make the coffee. We've got to do this. And so I don't have time to talk. But he would always talk to me. He was really interested in my family. Um, at that time, we just found out we were pregnant with Oliver, our first son. They had already had their first daughter, Evie, and they were new to the area. And, and I just remember always be, seeing him and, and thinking, I like this guy. I just hope he doesn't stop to talk to me because I've got things to do and I want to go home. And then I got convicted. At one point, I'm, I'm, I'm here at church or was praying, and I just remember God saying, did you come here because of the Starbucks job? Did you come here because of a promotion, because you were going to get paid more? Or did you come here to start a church? And the answer was, yeah, I came here to start a church. I did not move to Madison because of the weather, okay? So I didn't move to Madison so I could manage a Starbucks. I moved here so we could start a church. And then I felt convicted because here's Matt. He's being really friendly to me all the time, and I'm not really being friendly to him. So I I tell him about our church. I'm also a pastor. I know it probably surprises you because I'm not very friendly, but uh, I would love it if you came and were a guest on our one-year anniversary. It's coming up, and I told him a little bit about our church, and him and his wife and their little girl came on our first anniversary, and they they were like, we love this place, we love this church, we're going to keep coming, and I thought, yes, because we just needed people, there were like 10 of us at the time, and um, like in the entire building, including the janitor and Jesus, and so, yes, we just tripled because we gained three feet people, and a couple months later, Matt decided to get baptized. He had grown up in and around the church, but he had never really made that decision for himself. And so we were going through a series. We talked about baptisms. And I think we got a picture of Matt getting baptized. And from there, Matt became a small group leader at our church, and him and his family really contributed to a lot of what we were going to do. Now, let's just put a pause there. The story is not over. I'm coming back to it, okay? Um, today, we're starting this new series in Jude. And uh, Jude is this letter, and it's kind of negative. And, and when you read it, it, it's not a very uplifting letter. Like, if you need to be encouraged, this isn't the one you're reading. And I know that we live in a society with a lot of bad news. Anytime you turn on the news or Facebook, it's always bad news. And so you might think, well, why in the world are we doing a series on a bad news letter? Well, that's a great question. Now, here's the deal. Jude wanted to write a positive letter. I mean, he actually expresses it. He says, I wanted to write you to say good things, nice things, encourage you, but you done screwed up. I can't say any of those things because you've let something bad happen, and now we need to deal with it. Jude is warning this church, hey, this is the difference between heaven and hell, how you're going to respond. So I can't pat you on the back right now because there's a warning. And so sometimes we do need a little bad news. Sometimes we need to turn on the news and we need to be hit in the face with the reality of consequences of the actions of what we're doing or what other people are doing so that we can do something about it. The answer is never, ever just ignore the problems and they go away. How many of you have tried that? You're an expert at ignoring the problems and you know by trial and error 
They just don't go away until you deal with it. And that's what Jude is doing here, is he's writing this letter to plead with them. And so Jude is the second to last book in your Bible, so you can head there if you want to follow along, highlight, or write notes. Absolutely, you can use the House Bibles, or the Bible app is free to download. And while you're going to Jude, um, let me just tell you a little bit about him, the author. Jude is writing, and he is more likely than not, who is Jude? Jude is more likely than not the brother of Jesus. Although he doesn't identify himself as that way, he says, I am a slave of Jesus. But what he says Next is what really tells us that he's the brother of Jesus is because he claims to be the brother of James. There's one James that we know about in the New Testament. He's a really big deal. It actually, in 2,000 years, we've kind of think Peter and we think Paul, but in that first century, if we were walking out, we would have definitely thought of James first because he was in Jerusalem. He would have been the pastor of the largest church there, and everyone would have thought of James. So in this way, Jude is saying, I'm a slave of Jesus brother of James. And in that way, he kind of establishes his authority. He says, why should you listen to me? Well, because I'm the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't say that. And it's out of humility. This is essentially, and you guys can imagine this because I've said this before, Judah's saying, don't call me pastor. Jude's saying, don't call me apostle. Don't call me this. Don't call me that. My name's Jude. And I'm just like you. I'm a slave of Jesus. Also his brother. So, <laughs> but he says, but he's trying to be humble, and I really appreciate that. And so in this letter, he's gonna, his, his response glorifies God, and it emphasizes God's mission. It's not about his status in the world, but God's status in God's kingdom. And then the second thing is, who is he writing to? Well, we don't really know who this letter is written to. We don't know when it was written, um, except that it's written to Christians, and specifically, it's written to Jewish Christians. And, um, we know that because of how many references we're going to have in this entire letter that are very Jewish in nature. And so in the past, we've talked about Ephesians, we've talked about Colossians here, and those were written to either non-Jews or Jews and non-Jews. This is the first letter we've studied that was written exclusively to Jews. So as we go through this series, we're going to talk about some weird things, but we'll talk about culturally why that made sense to the Jews 2,000 years ago who were trying to understand Christianity. And so let's begin. Uh, there's only one chapter in Jude. So we don't say Jude chapter 1, verse 1. We just say Jude 1, referring to the verse. And so we're reading Jude 1 and 2 here. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. And so we're going to spend today's time together discussing just these two verses. And you might think, well, didn't we just discuss it? Jude, and he's writing to Jewish Christians. What more is there to talk about? I spent a lot of time wondering that myself, too, as I was preparing for this message. I was like, what are we going to talk about? But I think it's really interesting. This is the only letter in the New Testament that starts this way. All of We talked about how Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, Paul started it a very certain way. And he talked about grace and peace and all of these other things that he was wishing on them. But Jude focuses on another area. He focuses on, he says, you're called by God, you're loved by God, and you're kept by God. And this is, this is the only time we see kind of that phrasing in the New Testament as an introduction to a letter. And what he's actually doing is he's reading out of Isaiah. And so that's a Jewish reference that they would have known when they read this. Oh, he's kind of quoting Isaiah. And so let's start by talking about who are these Christians that he's defining and what do these things mean? And we're going to start with calling. As a believer, 
you are called. If you are in the room and you are a follower of Jesus, you have a calling on your life. This idea of being called is found in both the Old and New Testaments, and it's when God gives men and women, you and me, a role to play in his redemptive mission. And that means there's a greater purpose for what you do than your nine to five. There's greater purpose for what you do than how much money you make or how much stuff you accumulate. That There's actually something that supersedes all of that. Now, it is very, it's the same word that we use for calling that we would use in Madison, Wisconsin in 2018. And so often we don't say, what are you called to do? You probably heard this question when you were little and it's, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to do a little poll right now. Who wanted to be a firefighter or a police officer? Come on, firefighter. How about a nurse or a doctor? Yes, okay. An actor or musician? Okay. I did not know that about you. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> did I miss any? Did any of you guys have something you just wanted to be when you grow up? Superhero? I thought so. I did think so. Anyone else? Christian, what do you want to be when you grow up? Doesn't know yet. Okay, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. And here's the thing. So we just kind of talked about what you wanted to be when you grow up. Because you're so driven and you're so talented and you, you've definitely had a little bit of luck over your life, you are all where you want to be. You are all doing the thing you wanted to do when you were Five years old, you like going to work, you get paid well, and you're pretty happy in life altogether, right? No, is he being sarcastic right now? Yes, yes, that's a rhetorical. Don't answer that. It's not very likely at all that the thing you wanted to be, it's not likely, but it is possible that the thing you wanted to be when you're five is the thing you grew up to be when you were 25 or 45. Me, I wanted to play quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. That's just, that was my dream. I spent countless hours in the backyard with my dad throwing and catching a football. And I got pretty good. And I got on a team in high school. And I was pretty good for a little while. As you can imagine, as we kept getting older and older, everyone kept getting taller and taller except me. I didn't get tall. And everyone kept putting on weight and muscle except me. And then at one point, I played outside linebacker, and then I got a little older, they transitioned me to defensive back, and then I got a little bit older, and they put me as running back, and they kept saying, there's, there's not any more, you can't be a smaller position, like we're at the bottom of the totem pole for size here. And uh, I decided after getting injured a lot that, it, you know what, football probably wasn't for me, but I was so discouraged and disappointed because my whole life I was going to be the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. I don't know what they would have done with Aaron Rodgers. But they probably would have traded them for me, obviously. And, uh, and I imagine that that happened to you too. No, you didn't grow up with a Green Bay Packers-themed bedroom like I did. But you probably had a time in your life where that dream, your calling, what you wanted to be, didn't happen. You weren't smart enough. You weren't good enough. You weren't fill-in-the-blank, whatever, enough. But I don't want you to feel discouraged because I think it's easy to see somebody who, when they were five, they wanted to be this. They always knew they wanted to be this and they became this. It's easy to think that those people are happy and they're paid well and they love going to their jobs all the time. But I can tell you something that you deep down already know that they too question the calling on their life. Even if they are where they've always wanted to be, they say, is this really it? Now, God's calling certainly includes your job, wherever you work, most places. Um, I can only think of a few that wouldn't qualify for this. But wherever you work, 
God has a calling for where you work. He's given you skills. He's given you passions. And that's led you down the road. You don't have to be a pastor or in, you know, religious kind of field, if you will, to, to have a calling on your life that can make an eternal difference. You can have all sorts of jobs doing all sorts of things. Because what matters with our calling isn't just what we do. It's who we are and who we impact on the way to that journey. And so it doesn't matter if you drive for Lyft, you deliver packages for Amazon, you're an executive for Apple or quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. It's what we do with what we have and who we are and who we become that absolutely matters more than the job that we hold and whether that's just this year or for a whole career. Now at the beginning of our lives, what's interesting about this, at the beginning of your lives, you ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's the fun question. We all want to know what are you going to be. Do you guys know what we ask at the end of our lives? We do have a hospice nurse in here. She can tell me afterwards if I'm right or not. But I've heard that at the end of our lives, we're going to ask this question. Did anything I do matter? Did I make any sort of significant impact on life? Which is essentially the same thing you were asking when you were five years old. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a firefighter because I want to make a difference. I want to be a doctor because I want to heal people. And then we get lost between 20 and 80. And we start pursuing other things, money, status, popularity, this, that, whatever it is. And then we get to the end of our life, and then we remember that five-year-old question in our heart. We're like, did anything I do matter? I owned a house that my kids are going to sell when I pass away. (laughs) I have a beater car that they're going to fight over. You know, I'm going to be lucky if they don't. They're going to ask the funeral person, like, how's the cheapest way we can do this? I know that's what they're going to ask, right? I'm not trying to be morbid, but I just know that those are the questions people are asking. And so I think that we we lose it. I love what Craig Rochelle, he's a pastor of a church of 30 plus locations. He writes, if you're not ministering and using your gifts in the church, then something God wants done is being ignored. Something God wants done isn't being done. And that's a reality. Sometimes we just want to believe that God is just going to do everything and I don't have to do anything. But that's not true because of calling. Because we have a calling on our lives, God has work that he intends for us to do. But I don't want to say that it's just the church. I'm not going to say that, well, you go to your job Monday through Friday and then on Sunday you come to church and you volunteer and you're a greeter and your life is fulfilled and you're all happy and you're never going to question your calling. I'm saying it includes that. But it also includes everything else that we do. If we're not using our gifts at church, at work, in the home, there are things that God wants done at church, in our home, or at work that aren't being done, things that he's called you to, and we're just not doing it. So it does not matter if you have a part-time job, if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're a teacher, if you're not using the gifts that God has given you every day, something that he desperately wants done is not being done. You're actually working against him. And those are the things that you're going to remember at the end of your life. Those are the things you're going to say, did I miss any opportunities? And God's going to say, yes, 60 years worth of opportunities I gave you every single day that you never took advantage of. And it's not going to matter how big your bank account is at that point. It's not going to matter what you did because what's going to matter is did it make a difference? And, and so we're going to come back here, okay? We're called. That's the first thing Jude tells us about believers. The second thing he tells us is that we are loved by God. And this is really important to understand that before we did anything for God, 
God did something for us because he loved us. And so we're going to watch a quick movie here, quick video clip on God's love. Okay, that's good. So let me just recap that video for you a little bit. God is love. It is who he is. Now, generally speaking, there are two, pe- there are two types of people in the world. And the first type are the people who walk around and they try to earn more of God's love. We do extra things. We go the extra mile because we want God to love us more. But here's the thing. God can't love you more because God's love is perfect. He already loves you as much as anyone or anything can. It's perfect. To say that God could love you more would be to say that he doesn't love you as much today as he does tomorrow, which means his love for you isn't perfect, which means God isn't perfect. And so that's not true. We know that's not true. So God's love is perfect means that he loves you the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever because of who he is. Now there's the other side of this, and there's people who walk around and they're worried that they're going to lose God's love. Well, if I screw up, if I do this, man, God's going to love me less. He's going to think of me less. That's also not true because God's essence is love. He can't love you less because that would mean he would have to reject himself. And he can't reject himself. His essence is love. It's not based on who you are. It's based on who he is. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he did. And so God is love. Now, usually there are two reactions to this. So you just heard that. And I'm guessing that for probably most of you, you have two thoughts. One, you reject the message because you can't fathom why God would love anybody that much or how God could love anyone. So you're like, well, that can't be true. That seems too good to be true. The other side of that is that you just accept it and you move on without making any changes. You're just like, yeah, God loves me. Cool. Grace. I can just do whatever I want. Now, both responses are are wrong. Okay, and here's what 1 John 4, 8 says. John writes, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We say it's too true, too good to be true that God loves me unconditionally. And John says, God is love. It is too good, but it's true. And we say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do because God loves me. John says, nope, anyone who does not love does not know God. Loving God and other people is the only response, the only appropriate response for God's love to us. And so Jude reminds us that while you have a job to do, you have a calling on your life, and what you do and how you do it absolutely matters. He's reminding you also that who you are is bigger than what you do, and who you are is a beloved child of God. So Judah has addressed what we do, who we are, and then the main point here, the final thing, is he mentions that we are kept. We are kept. We are his. You don't have to walk around life wondering if God's going to lose his temper one day and remove you from the family. You don't have to worry someday that he's going to revoke his promise to you. Well, you know, I, I thought I intended to save everyone who wanted to be saved, but you're too bad, or uh, I don't like you anymore, or whatever. He says, you are kept. You don't have to worry about it. Now, some will make the argument that this would say something like, well, see, we're kept by God, so ultimately what we do really doesn't matter. Well, a couple objections to that for me personally. One, in verse 21, he talks about us. Jude writes to the Christian church, he says, you do this to be kept in God. So it is a two-way street. God keeps us and we keep ourselves in God. It is a two-way relationship. But the second thing is, if we were kept by God and nothing ultimately mattered, why doesn't Jude write the happy-go-lucky letter? If nothing mattered, if well, our response didn't matter, Jude could just say, yeah, you let some false teachers in. Yeah, there's a lot of sexual immorality going around. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. But you know what? God's going to keep you. So don't worry about it at all. I mean, if you want to live an ethically good life, maybe you don't do that stuff. No, that's not what Jude does. The guy who writes God keeps you is also like, hey, you're going to go to hell 
if these things don't change. I'm worried about your salvation. I'm worried about what's going on. And again, that's not to say that we need to walk around on eggshells thinking that God's looking for a chance to throw us out of the family. He died on a cross. He's not looking for a chance to kick you out. He's looking for a chance to get you in, okay? But that is to say we are also kept. We can have assurance that God loves us. Our calling is secure in him. So in this passage, Jude points out specifically, we are called, we are loved, and we are kept by God as believers. No other author in the New Testament, as I mentioned, uses this kind of opening. But what do we do with this? What do we do with all this information? And I think that ultimately there are two responses that can come from us as a result of this message. And the first one has to do with mission. Okay? He mentions you are called. And because you are called, you have a mission. And it is a spiritual mission. Otherwise, I don't know what we're doing here on earth if it's not to go help people find a better life through Jesus. If we get to the end of this life, I've already proven because I'm a sinner, I've already proven I can't do this on my own. So I don't know why Jesus would die on a cross and say, now spend the rest of your life trying to live up to my standards. That doesn't make sense to me. It's like, well, you already know I can't, right? Like, spoiler alert, we know how this ends. But that I'm here, that I have a calling, tells me that God has this cosmic mission. And there are people far from him who desperately need him. And God is saying, Stephen and Marie and Peter and Dan, I want you to go and find those people. Because when you get to the end of your life and you ask, did any of it matter? Nothing will matter except the names of the people who were important to you and who you did something for and who you did something about. I think that it has to do with mission. Now, we have a calling, so we have a job to do, but the primary motivation for that mission is love. Because God loves other people, because God loved me when I was unlovable, the only response I could possibly have is to love other people, so I have to go on mission for him. I have to do this. Not because of fear, but because I'm loved. That's my response to love. I think of this baptism that we had just a few uh, actually, this one was a couple years ago. We baptized Matt, right? Well, Matt becomes a small group leader, and then he invites somebody to our church from work. It was after I had quit being there, and, and Matt tells me, hey, I'm inviting this uh, young woman who works in the bakery. Her name is Brianna. She's been coming to my small group, and I thought, hey, that's great. Like, we need people. So, yeah, we came to Madison to start a church, not work at a coffee shop. Bring her in. And, and so she started getting more involved, and it was so evident that God took a hold of her life and started doing new things. And people have known her her whole life. Actually, just I talked with one of them a couple months ago. One of her friends who has known her for more than 10 years says, I don't know what you guys have done in the last year, but she's a completely different person. I said, well, it's not really us. We provide a setting for people to grow spiritually and gather together and give back, and we believe that that with God changes lives. And she said, it's amazing because Brianna's grown so much. And so we got to the point where we told Brianna, like, hey, do you want to be baptized? Baptism is this, and it's that. It's symbolic of changed life. And she said, absolutely. And so we have this picture of, that was Matt. And the other picture, who was in the middle, now Matt is next to me baptizing Brianna. Because Matt took his calling seriously. Because Matt took his love seriously. Because Matt knew, hey, I want to be kept and God is keeping and I need to help build this family of Christ that we need to baptize more people. And so I think that he was somebody who took that mission very seriously. The second thing that I think there's mission, the second thing is I think it has to do with worship. And I'm not talking about the three and a half songs we play to start the service every single weekend. It certainly includes music. Worship absolutely includes music. But we're told the biblical view of worship is actually offering our whole selves. The things we say, the things we do, 
to God. That's part of our calling is to worship. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 29, verse 13. And so says the Lord, these people say they are mine. They call themselves Christians. They honor me with their lips. They sing the songs every Sunday, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing more than man-made rules learned by rote. What's he saying? They come to church on Sunday because they grew up going to church on Sunday. And they sing the songs because that's what you're supposed to do. And they stand because that's what you're supposed to do. And they raise their hand during the second chorus in the bridge because that's what you're supposed to do. And God says, they do all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. They say they're mine, but that's about as far as that goes. Apparently thousands of years ago, churches were already coming together and being hypocritical. All right, so it's been a problem for a long time. It's not a recent one. He says, your lives aren't aligned with the words that you're singing on Sunday morning. Worship includes the clothes that you put on this morning, includes the foods that you eat. Worship includes how you organize your calendar. Worship includes how you budget your finances. Worship is every single choice, every single moment you make, not just the three and a half songs. Because if we come together and during those three and a half songs we worship, but nothing else lines up, our calendars, our budgets, our lives, God's going to say, well, you say you're mine, but we both know that's not true, don't we? And we're like, well, don't tell anybody else, God. I'm doing the good thing here by just showing up. And, and so we have to see this message, these first few verses of Jude saying, you're called, you're loved, you're kept. And it's for God's mission, and it's for God's glory. I want to close with this story here. Um, so we baptized Brianna. Uh, Brianna keeps coming to our church. We eventually, we just a few months after we baptized her, actually added her to our staff. Uh, we just felt like she checked a lot of boxes for us, and we added her to our staff, and she has been killing it and doing really good things. I already mentioned a lot of that. But then just a couple months ago, Brianna actually baptized her mom. So just follow along with me. The first picture, Matt was in the middle. The second picture, Matt's on the side baptizing Brianna. The third picture, Matt's on, Brianna's on the side. Matt's not even in the picture. He's not even in, living in the state anymore. And Brianna's mom is in the middle. That's four generations of believers. Me, Matt, Brianna, Carla. Because we take seriously the call of our life, the love of our life, and being kept. Because we know that that has to do two things to us. We have to take seriously God's mission and we have to worship him. And that's a whole life decision. And when you ask, like, why do people want to be a part of this community? Or why do people want to be a part of this church or be a part of what we're doing? It's not because we have a great laser show or fog or a huge organ and choir. It's not because of any of that. It's because our people are real and authentic and seeking God. And God is changing lives from the inside out. And that's just not something you can program. That's just not something you can buy. It happens when our hearts truly pursue him. Jude is a Christian leader. He doesn't want to be called pastor. I really believe that if anybody in the New Testament, if they would come to our church, it would be Jude. He kind of seems like he has a bad attitude, and I kind of dig that about him. He probably has tattoos and some piercings. He says, I'm a slave of Christ, brother to James. Don't forget what that means. Don't call me pastor. We're all Christians. Let's take worship seriously. Let's take God's mission seriously. Don't forget what you do matters, who you are matters, and who you belong to. Will you guys pray with me?